There is an unseen hand to me that leads Welcome to the Unseen Hand Podcast, featuring the pulpit ministry of missionary evangelist Ronnie Brown. Listen in as Brother Ronnie shares the truth of the Bible and how God's unseen hand can lead and guide your life with each and every verse. This hand still leads me as I go. Psalms chapter number 72. Psalms chapter number 72. Today we're going to start a series of messages on Sunday morning on kind of a topic uh, that uh, I've been interested in as of late. Psalm chapter number 72, and look at verse 1 through 3. Psalm, excuse me, that's not Psalm 72, that's Psalm 73. I wrote the wrong one in my Bible, or my notes here. Psalm 73, and look at verse 1. Let's all stand. Psalm 73 and verse 1. Psalm 73 and verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now in that same chapter, look at verse 25. We're going to preach through this entire chapter, but I want to pick out some sections of it. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Something's changed. A minute ago, he was looking at the prosperous and the foolish, and he was envious, but now something radically is different. He said, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth. Now look at this phrase. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice that phrase right slam in the middle of verse 26. But God. You see, God changed the perspective of this man right here. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I'll describe the series that we're going to go into in just a minute. But let's look at, but God is the strength of my heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. Now, Father, I pray that you would teach us from it. God, your Holy Spirit has come to be a teacher in our heart. You promised that he would lead us into all truths. Now, Father, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take your people those that are here today that know you in saving faith. They are the children of God. We pray, Father, that your word would teach us to have the right perspective. That 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 but God kind of perspective. God, we pray that you'd come in and initiate, that you'd come in and change us, Father, uh, by your presence, by what you have to say. Father, we pray for the lost that may be in this room. We pray your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin righteousness, judgment to come, and would draw them to the Savior, and they might too know the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. God, just do your work that you do with preaching. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Today, I'd like to, like I said, I'd like to start a series surrounding the theme, When God Interrupts. When God Interrupts. In the text of Scripture that we read, and in other texts in the Bible, you will find this phrase, but God, or but Thou, Lord. You'll find it again and again in the Scripture. Some of the more memorable ones are Ephesians 2, uh, 3 and 4, where it says, Among whom are ye also, also we had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for with His great love wherewith He loved us, you see, but God, He interrupts our lives, us in our sinful condition, us in our rebellious condition, fulfilling the lusts of our flesh, and yet, but God loved us anyway. Also in Acts 13, 29-30, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a sepulcher, but God raised Him again from the dead. 
You see, the, the wicked hands of this man, the men of this world, thought they had crucified the Lord Jesus, thought they put an end to Him, but God changed the whole thing. God interrupted in time and raised His Son from the, from the dead. You see, every uh, child of God, every, every child of God uh, can have, a, have God interrupt their fainting fit. I, I think about the other day. I was watching those uh, marathon runners. Did you see the marathon in the Olympics? How many of you have been watching the Olympics? I, I love to watch the Olympics. When it comes around, man, I, I get glued to it. It takes me late in the night. I'm not getting enough sleep. I can't wait till they're over so I can start sleeping right again. But we were watching the marathon runners. You know that 24K run that they do, those marathon? We were watching the ladies, and they were running that marathon. And, and, and this one particular lady, I think she was from Japan. She had this grimacing, painful look on her face. I, I mean, she looked like with every step, she was in utter abject pain. But, but yet her body kept going. Her body kept taking that next step and the next step and the next step. She kept right on along with the pack. May have been losing a little ground, but she didn't stop. You see, the truth of the matter is, is that our heart can overcome our flesh. You realize that? Uh, me being involved in athletics, I know very well that the, uh, that the endorphins and that the, uh, the, 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 the conflict of the hour, the moment of competition can, uh, of heart can catapult me to going beyond what my body feels. I've played in pain before. Yeah, it's just like the football player. The football player can go out there and under the strain of competition with the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the adrenaline rush of, of playing the game, he can play with a broken leg. He can play battered and bruised just like the soldier on the battlefield that's been wounded, that's been shot, yet he continues to fight the enemy. Our heart can overcome our flesh. We can keep going if our heart's still, uh, still in the right place, if our heart's still into it. But what if both of them fail? What if the flesh and the heart fail? That's what the psalmist said in verse 26. My flesh and my heart fainted. He said, boy, he said, I don't have enough heart to keep going. I don't have enough heart to, to stay in the race to keep after what I've seen. And we're going to get into what he saw and his perspective here in a minute. But he said, after what I've seen, my heart is fainting and my flesh is fainting. I'm not going to go another step. But then God, what does he do? He interrupts. He said, but God is my strength, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Right in the middle of their fainting fit, God interrupted and revived this person. You see, this person's in a situation that from his perspective, he's got a lot of problems. He's in a fainting, he's got a fainting heart, fainting flesh, because he's been looking at things in life from the wrong perspective. And we're going to read that here in a minute. You remember the first part of Psalm 73? How that he was, he was envious of the foolish. He was looking at their prosperity. You see, he had a wrong perspective. But God can change our perspective. Every child of God can have God interrupt their fainting fit by remembering the following three perspectives. Three perspectives. You know what a perspective is. It's a way of looking at things. It's a way of looking at the world. You wear, if you wear glasses, Brother Tony here's got a set of glasses. If he takes those glasses off, he has a different perspective, don't you, Brother Tony? If you put those glasses back on, he has another perspective. If you put a stronger kind of glasses on, he might yet have another perspective. We as believers need to make sure we have the right perspective because if we have the right perspective on life, if we have the right perspective on this world, if we have the right perspective on ourselves, then we can find our strength and our portion in a living God that interrupts our lives. Now, first of all, in this uh, perspective, the first perspective I want you to notice is a worldly wrong perspective. A worldly wrong perspective. And that's, we read in verses 1 through 3. He said, uh, here truly God is good to Israel. He's kind of down on the mouth. God may be good to Israel, but man, not to me. I'm having problems, even as so much as I have a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, 
For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist said that he was uh, having a fainting fit. That he started, when he started looking at the wicked. If you really want to start sinking fast, you really want to start sinking fast and, and, and not have a, the faith to take another step and not have the heart to take another step in this marathon of life, you get your eyes on, off of the Lord and you get them on the world. I tell you what, that'll bring you down in a hurry. And that's exactly what's happening to this psalmist here. You see, from the world's perspective, the forbearance of God indicates the absence of God. Notice this. The forbearance of God indicates the absence of God for the world. Notice verse 4 through 6. He said, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride uh, compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. The first thing we want to look at is the forbearance of God from their perspective indicates an absence of God. The psalmist said there is no pain. There is no struggle. That word in verse 4, there are no bands in their death. What that indicates is there's no struggle at the end of their life. Uh, they, they, they sweetly and calmly go through the portals of death. There's no struggle at, at the end of their life. There's no chastening in their life. He said, for their strength is firm. There's been no heavy hand of God upon them. Uh, everything's alright with them. There's seemingly no punishment for sin. Look at verse 5. They're not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. It's uh, These wicked men that blaspheme God, that curse God, doesn't seem like they're getting the punishment they ought to get. I mean, you ever felt that way? Old Ted Turner, living it up, says, well, in my life I've had a few drinks. I've had a few women. If God's going to send me to hell for that, so be it. Ted Turner flies in his airplanes. Ted Turner lives in his mansions. He spends his wealth. He's not punished like other men. Uh, Hugh Hefner lives the, the wonderful, rich life in that great mansion that he has in Las Vegas. And they don't seem like they're punished. That's what the psalmist says. These wickedness, and they seem to think in their mind, since God has not given me justice, since God hasn't come down on me, then there must not be a God. You see, that's what the world thinks. That's what the, uh, the world that, that takes the forbearance of God and turns it into an absence of God. They make the mistake, uh, they mistake the forbearance of God for an absence of God. Be assured that you will give an account before God for your sin. If you're here today and you're lost, you've never repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ, you need to be assured that just as you have sinned, uh, just because you've sinned and gotten away with it temporarily doesn't mean that'll be the case when you die. That doesn't mean that'll be the case when you draw your last breath. But from their perspective, they think, hey, nothing's happening to me. I'm living it up. I fornicate. I, 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 I have all the pleasures of this world. Anything this world could possibly offer. And the judgment of God hasn't befallen me. And they take the forbearance of God to mean uh, there is a, uh, there is a, an absence of God. When Romans 2, 4 says the forbearance of God is supposed to bring you to repentance, not to lift you up in pride. Romans 2, chapter 4 says that the forbearance of God, the mercy of God, the withholding of God's judgment is supposed to bring us to repentance. But it says in the next verse, for the unrepentant, for the rebellious at heart, the judgment of God is brewing over them. A treasury of wrath lies ahead for them. You see, the forbearance of God, from their perspective, the forbearance of God means an absence of God. Also, from their perspective, the fortunes of gain indicate an absence of God. Look at verse 3. Now this, uh, verse 3, he said, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. These wicked men aren't going around as uh, slaves and as uh, as uh, the, the the downtrodden in society. No, the wicked he's finding, 
Those that rebel against God, those that ignore God, they say there is no God, they're the ones that seem to be wealthier than everybody else. They're the ones that seem to have more. You be right honest. Not every person uh, that is a profligate, uh, that does whatever their flesh wants them to do, is an abject poverty. Not every one of them is in a crack house rolling around in their own field. Most of them, a majority of them, are living the good life. You can see how this would disturb his perspective. This man has saw the fortunes of gain that the wicked are taking in, and he's saying, wait a minute, what's wrong with this picture? There's something wrong with it. But yet, from the perspective of the world, the fortunes of gain indicate an absence of God. Uh, this whole skewed perspective started when the psalmist started looking at the wealth of the wicked. Look, look at them. They don't, they don't give a rip about God. And yet, they're not living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, they don't care about what God says. They don't care what they say about God. And yet, they're not, they're not having to scrape by. They're doing all right. They're doing real well. Uh, it says in, in verse, uh, verse seven. What is this uh, verse? Excuse me. What verse are we in? We're in verse se- uh, three. And look at verse seven. We look at verse three. Now verse seven. Their eyes stand out with fatness. Fatness was supposed to indicate prosperity. It's supposed to indicate, hey, they're not hurting for a meal. You know, like most of us, we're probably pretty. Pro- I'm pretty prosperous because I'm not hurting for a meal. I, 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 I've got some weight. He said they've got fatness in their eyes. They're not having to miss a meal because they can't afford it. They got fatness in their eyes. And then also, they have more than they could possibly wish for. <laughs> they got everything they could possibly want. I think about Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, the two rank atheists of this day, pushing that new atheism. You know, they wrote their books, The, uh, the God Delusion and The God, A God Is Not Great, Blaspheming God taking the name of God and making it a mockery. You know, they're making money hand over fist, selling their books, pushing their, uh, pushing their titles. You know, they're living high on the hog off of taking the name of God and blaspheming it, of t- making shipwreck of people's faith. Of t- They're making fortunes off turning people away from Christ. And God doesn't do anything about it. Their house doesn't burn down. Uh, things don't happen to them. They're not hurting for money. They're, they're running all over the globe promoting their books, blaspheming, and wickedly bringing a reproach in the name of God, yet nothing seemingly ever touches their fortunes. The downturn in the economy hasn't affected them one bit. Just don't seem right, does it? But from a worldly perspective, that's an absence of God. <laughs> I'm making money hand over fist and I'm spitting at God and blaspheming Him. <laughs> I've got it made. You see, that's the worldly wrong perspective. And I'm going to show you why after a while. But it's the worldly wrong perspective. So that's the worldly wrong perspective. And then finally, the forthright gloat it, it indicates an absence of God. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. You believe this? Their eyes stand out. Verse 7. No, wait a minute. It's verse 8, I believe. Uh, they are corrupt. Yeah, verse 8. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak lawfully. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. You talk about a couple of, uh, a, a group of haughty people, pride-filled people. These, they got a forthright glow. Uh, uh, that they're saying, they, this, how the wicked, uh, uh, and yet no fire, how they blaspheme God, how they curse God, and yet no fire falls from heaven. I mean, I haven't heard of that hitting Christopher Hitchens yet. And, and, and that Sam, uh, uh, that Sam guy, I can't remember his name, and Christopher Hitchens and, uh, and, uh, Richard Dawkins, no fire is falling from heaven. Their plane hasn't crashed up against the mountaintop. Nothing bad is happening to them. And yet, these are some of the things they say. Listen, they listen to what Christopher Hitchens said. God did not make man his own image. Evidently, it was the other way about, which is the painless explanation for the profusion of gods and religions and for the fractitude between and among the face that we, that we see all about us and that is no, that is so retarded in, uh, retarded in the development of our civilizations. He said it 
God hasn't made man in his own image. Man has made God in his own image. That's what he's saying about a God that has revealed himself, that sent his son to die on a cross for him. That's what he said about it. Listen, what uh, um, Richard Dawkins says in the, in the God delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a, 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 a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, emphasidal, and genocidal. That's what they said about the God of the Old Testament. The God who is to be revered. The God who in love and mercy saved Israel. That's what they say about it. Now I'm going to tell you what. If I said that and I meant it from my heart and shaking my fist before God, I'd be wondering about lightning bolts striking me right there where I stood. I, I just, I can't believe somebody could pin such hateful, wicked words about the God of heaven, the God who is merciful, the God who's forbearing, but in their forthright gloats. And what they've said about God, they simply, no fire falls, nothing ever happens, there must be no God. There must be an absence of God. You see, that's what the psalmist Asaph is looking at. He's watching them blaspheme God. He's watching them gain uh, through ungodly gains. He's watching them, uh, 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 them uh, take advantage of the forbearance of God. And nothing ever happens. And that's what's twisted in his perspective. That's the perspective uh, of the world go. They walk around without a care in the world and God seemingly does nothing about it. That's the number one wrong perspective. A worldly wrong perspective. Because God doesn't react immediately. Because God doesn't do this. Because God doesn't do that. Therefore, there is no God. It's a wrong perspective. Now, now I want you to notice the next one. Not only a worldly wrong perspective, but a personally partial perspective. Personally Partial perspective. Remember now, the psalmist has been looking at the world through the eyes of the wicked. He said, this is what the wicked see. He put the glasses on, per se, of the wicked and said, this is what the world looks like to them. I can do what I want, go where I want, uh, save what I want, do what I want. No fire from heaven. There is no God. That begins to bother the, uh, the psalm writer. And so then he takes those glasses off and puts another set of glasses on that are only partial. You ever gone to the, uh, to the, uh, the eye doctor and they'll, they'll do something, they'll cover up this eye and you'll only have a partial perspective, a partial vision of that chart. That's what's happening to Asaph, the, the psalmist here. He's got a partial vision because it's not complete. You see, uh, it gives a skewed perspective. He pulls away from the wicked perspective and looks at his own life and compares the two. He's comparing the life of the wicked with the life of the child of God. And now, but, but take into account that this perspective as well as the previous perspective, it's not complete. You see, the perspective of the worldly in the first part of the psalm is not complete as well. It doesn't have the day of judgment. It doesn't have what happens after death. The same is true here with the psalmist. He's not taking into account the same thing as well. He is, has a partial perspective. Notice that he has a partial view of prosperity. Now this whole psalm started with the psalmist envious, enviously looking at the prosperity of the wicked. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw their prosperity. It's the prosperity of the wicked that threw this guy off. That gave him a partial perception. It didn't, he wasn't seeing clearly. You see, there is nothing like covetousness to give someone the wrong perspective. I'm going to tell you something right now. Covetousness will give you the wrong perspective. How many of you ever got car fever before? And in every car you saw drive down the highway was the one you wanted. Amen. Allison's having the same problem. Allison says, Amen. Baby. Every car we see is that Tacoma from Toyota. It's, that's it. Did you see it, Daddy? There it went. There's a white one. There's a red one. There's a blue one. Every car we pass has got to be that Tacoma she wanted to have when she 
uh, seems to think she's going to get a new car when she turns 16. It may be more like 32. But the, the fact of the matter is, her vision is what? It's skewed. She can't see the debt that her daddy's going to have to incur to get that car. <laughs> she, she's not thinking about how daddy's going to have to come up with that car payment. You see what I'm saying? Her vision is skewed. That's the same thing that's happening here. He's looking at the prosperity of the wicked and there's nothing like covetousness to get you to forget all the implications of what you're looking at. Covetousness. He's saying, I love God and I follow God and I give to God. I deserve to be blessed. I deserve to be prosperous. Not them. Can anybody give me a witness right there? You tithe. Most of you tithe. I don't know who does, who doesn't. If you don't, you ought to. It's commanded by God. We went over that in April. I'll give you another refresher here uh, uh, next year. But the fact of the matter is, he says, I tithe, I give, I go to church, I give sacrifices, I do what I'm supposed to do. I'm the one that ought to be prospering. And yet I'm the one, ha I'm the one living the paycheck to paycheck. I'm the one having the hardest time. God ought to be blessing me. God ought to be giving me this. I give them my time, my talents, my, my treasure, my time, and I still struggle. Are you there? Do I have your attention now? Is that your perspective? Surely you've thought that before as you drive down the big houses and you see the big cars and, and you know, you know the guy down at the workplace, he's, uh, he's cheating on his wife, he, he's, he's, uh, has an affair on the side, this and that, and there, he's doing wrong, and yet he's got the six figure income, he's got the new car, he's got the new house. When I'm trying to live godly, I'm trying to love my family, love my wife, trying to be what God would have me to do, and I'm barely getting by. You see, prosperity can skew our vision. Not only prosperity, but also he had a partial view of purity. Look at verse 13. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He said, man, look at me. He said, the psalmist is saying that, that I've guarded, I've kept pure uh, my, uh, my whole being. He said in the, in the first part, he said, I've cleansed my heart. That's the inside. He said, I've tried to strive to stay clean on the inside. I don't let bitterness grow up in my heart. I don't let hatred, malice, I don't let lust develop and take root in, in my heart. But not only the inside, but he said also on the outside. He said, I've washed my hands in innocency. He said, not only have I taken care of the inside, I'm living right on the outside. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do on the outside to follow God, to love God, to, to, uh, to be His people, to be His disciple. And yet it seems like it's for nothing. It seems in vain when I try to live right and everybody around me is just going to hell on a bobslide and living it up like there is no God, like there is no coming judgment. You see, that's what's missing from his perspective. Don't let me get the cat, uh, cart before the horse here. But, but he's saying everything's going right for him. The wicked don't, uh, the wicked don't give a rip about living right. Uh, they, they have their own things. They do their own thing. And yet I'm not doing any better than they're doing. Matter of fact, I'm doing worse. I'm having to guard myself all the time. I'm having to guard what my eyes look at on the television. I'm having to guard my trigger finger when it comes uh, to the television. I'm having to guard my eyes when it comes to the magazine rack. I'm having to guard my eyes when it comes down to the workplace and the gossip and the bitterness and this and that. I'm having to guard this and guard that when they don't guard nothing. They just do what comes natural to them. And they're no less, uh, they're, they're, they're no less the worse off. And I'm having a hard time of it. I'm struggling. I'm doing what Paul said, beat my body into submission. Hey, if anybody told you the Christian life was an easy life, they sold you a bit of good, bill of goods. It's not easy to live pure. It's not easy to, to walk godly, to follow in the steps of the Lord Jesus. And here we are. I, I'll never forget when I ran track and field. All those track and field things I'm watching now remind me of my one year as a track and field runner. I ran the mile. And I'll never forget running that mile. And I'd be going around that track and my side hurting me, man. I, I didn't want to be there. I just wanted that letter. That's all I wanted. I want something on my thing for my freshman year. That's all I wanted. I wanted a letter. And that's why I ran track. But I just didn't like running. I mean, I, I really didn't like running. And I'd run that mile and I'd, I'd run past the stands and I'd look in them stands and all my buddies up there, hey, Ronnie, they're eating a hot dog and drinking a Coke and butting around. Man, I want to be up there. I don't want to be down here. I don't want to be running this raid. 
Why am I putting my body through this? Why am I doing this? And they're having a good time. Can anybody identify with me at all? But a lot of times that's what the Christian life feels like. Everybody's having a good time except us. We're trying to live right and live godly when it doesn't seem like it really all that matters all that much from this perspective, from that perspective, that skewed vision. Partial view of purity, partial view of prosperity. Then they've got a partial view of punishment. Punishment. Look at verse 14. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He said, I get punished. When I, when I say, forget the purity ways, and I go do what I want to do, and I do sin, I do transgress, I can't get away with nothing. You ever felt that way? You can't get away with nothing. God, He said, I am chased. I, I, I am plagued. God, get, I can't get away with anything. The wicked are never chased. They do anything and everything they want. But not to me. No, 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 not me. I can't get away with nothing. I, I can't get away with one glance, one look, one wrong step without God knocking at my heart saying, you're in the wrong place. You're doing the wrong thing right now. You need to make an about face. You need to repent. You need to make things right with the Lord right now. When it seems like their conscience is not bothered a bit. It seems like they can get away with anything. I can't veer off course to one degree without God chasing me. I remember when I was a kid, seven, eight, nine years old. I tell you what, it seemed like my dad was on my case all the time. All the time. And now I'm on Evan's case, just like he was on me. Seven, eight, nine years old, there's just something about that area where you're constantly pruning, you're constantly chastening, you're constantly guiding and, 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 and admonishing and correcting and, and trying to teach him how to live. And it just seems endless. That's what Asaph said. It seemed like God's on my back all the time about everything I do. I can't get away with nothing. You see, he's got a what? A skewed perspective. We're fixing to correct it. We're fixing to fix it, all right? Stay with me now. I'm going somewhere. I, I know I'm going somewhere. We've seen a worldly wrong perspective. We've seen a personally partial perspective. Now I want you to see a godly grand perspective. You see, in 15 and 16, look at verse 15. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I, I should offend against the generation of, of, of thy children. What he's saying there, he said, if I would have stood up and told everybody what I'm thinking right now, what he's been thinking here. You see, verses 1 through 14 aren't the things that Christians talk about. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about how that we envy the rich. <laughs> we don't talk about how we envy the ungodly. How they can, how they're having such a good time. I mean, hey, sin's fun for now. The, the, the pleasures of sin are for a season, but they're pleasures nonetheless. We don't like to talk about that. And he said, he said for fear of, uh, of what it would do to the children of Israel, I haven't said anything. Verse 16, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. But look at verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Even though our but God is in written in verse 26, this is where it actually happens. This is where God intervenes. This is where God begins to change this perspective. We realize the psalmist has been uh, holding all this in his heart. He hadn't said anything to the people around him. It's been a trial. It's been a difficulty. But in verse 17, things are about to change. God begins to butt in. God begins to, uh, to, uh, to encounter this situation, to change this situation, and to come right slam, as my old preacher used to say, right slam in the middle of, of Asaph's perspective. You see, he walks into the sanctuary. And this is where God butts in. This is where he interrupts the psalmist thinking. First of all, he interrupts with the reality of coming punishment. Notice what he said in continuing verse 17. He said, when I went in the sanctuary of God, then I understood what? Therein. I understood therein. 18. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou canest, uh, uh, thou, uh, 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 castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. He's saying in verse 17 through 19, he's saying, I finally realized where they're going to end up. I finally realize that this life 
It's just the foyer. It's just the front. Not, you know that part up there with all the tile and everything? That's just the foyer. That's just the front part of, of, of the sanctuary. Listen, life is like that foyer. It's just the front short part. It's a vapor that's here today, gone tomorrow. Eternity is forever. And ASAP began to remember, oh yeah, when I went down to the house of God, they told me about where the wicked are going. It's a shame today that if Asaph went into our average church, he wouldn't hear about it. He wouldn't hear about the destruction of the wicked. He wouldn't hear about the wrath to come. But that's exactly what he said here. You know, he said, but this day he heard their present life of pleasure and ease. God was, has placed them in slippery places where without a moment's notice, they will be brought to judgment. He's brought them in, he's put them in slippery places. Oh, they may be dancing up, they may be dancing up a storm. But any moment now, it's like, uh, that great preacher, uh, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, and that sinners in the hands of an angry God message. You remember reading that in high school? How that he said that they, that the heathen, the wicked walk on life as on a rotten tapestry. I always used to think about when he'd say tapestry, an old, a blanket. My grandmother used a patch quilt. And a rotten tapestry that at any moment they could slip off in certain rotten places in that tapestry. Any moment they could be gone and slip out into eternity. Nothing but a spider's web stands between them and the eternal torments of hell. He said that's what the wicked, wicked walk like every day. They walk in uncertain places which any moment could thrust them in eternal torments in hell. Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, I hope... I pray that they repent, that they turn to Jesus Christ. You realize that uh, the Apostle Paul was basically the Richard Dawkins, uh, the uh, Christopher Hitchens of his day, and yet he was converted, and God used him mightily throughout the whole earth. God could do that to a Christopher Hitchens. God, there's nobody out of God's reach. God, could, if if Christopher Hitchens uh, would bow his knee and repent and believe God would give him salvation just like he gave it to you, just like he gave it to you, God would give him salvation. He'd, he'd use him for his own glory. But if they don't, they will incur the full measure of the wrath of God. Life is not without justice. Not only will they be brought to justice, but not only Christopher Hitchens and, and Richard Dawkins will be brought to justice, but every liar, every thief, every blasphemer will meet the judgment of God. You've told one lie. The Bible says, Romans, uh, Re Revelation 21, 8, all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. If you've ever taken something that didn't belong to you, the Bible says in, in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 that no thief shall inherit the kingdom of God. No blasphemer, uh, no adulterer, no drunkard shall inherit the kingdom of God. They will in no way enter the kingdom of God. Also, every person that is attempted to work their way into God's pleasure, every, even every moral yet unrepentant person are going to find themselves in the judgment of Almighty God. That's what God changed His perspective. This life, just looking at this life as we know it right now, is a skewed perspective. It's skewed. You don't see it right unless you include life after death. If you're always looking at this life, if you're always, hey, let them say what they will. Let them say we're a pie in the sky by and by when you die. But that's what the Bible teaches. The best is yet to come. I remember old, old Billy Kelly used to preach that message called the best is yet to come. Hey, the best is yet to come. The best. It's, and listen, if you look at this life only, you get a skewed perspective. You see the reality of coming punishment. But also, we find that the psalmist had the remembrance of a, of a comforting presence. Look at verse 20. He said, as a dream, when one awaketh so, O Lord, when thou wakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved. I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I. God's really doing the work. He's changing his perspective. He was saying, oh, I was so envious. I was so jealous. I, I wanted what the wicked have. He said, how can I be so foolish? So foolish was I and ignorant. I was a beast before thee. He said, I was as dumb as, a, as an ox before you. I was as dumb as an old, an old animal, an old beast before you. I didn't make sense of this whole thing until I came into God's house, until I heard the revelation of God, until I heard what He had to say. 
He said, I was foolish. I was ignorant as was. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. I'm continually with thee. Thou hast holding me by my right hand. You see, he's remembering the presence of God. When God interrupted and illuminated his perspective, he was ashamed and even grieved in verse 23. He was grieved in verse 23. He said, I have your presence with me. No matter the wealth of the world, no matter what this world has to offer, no matter what uh, the wicked have to offer, there is nothing in this world like walking with God. To know that He is on my side. That the Lord is for me, not against me. That I am His child. That I am part of His people. You see, I have, He said, I, I, I love this verse. I, I, I've never read this verse before in verse 23. Or really, I just didn't recognize it. Thou hast holding me by my right hand. I've had a, a lot of preachers say, oh, God doesn't, God doesn't hold our hand and smooch on us and give us big hugs or whatever. But here it does say, He'll hold my hand. He'll hold my hand. You remember that old song? He'll hold my hand as over this river I go. He'll hold our hands. I have God with me wherever I go. Whatever I do, He's with me. He holds my hand. He will lead me. Look at the next verse. He said, uh, he, he shall guide me with thy counsel and afterwards receive me unto glory. A lot of people say, well, in the Old Testament, there's no heaven there's no hell. There's only Sheol. i tell you what. This, this chapter's really spoke to my heart. He said of the wicked, they'll be turned into torment. They'll be turned into terrors. He said, but I'm going to go to glory. I'm going to heaven. Like what old Dr. Hiles said, I said uh, 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 that if anybody's going to be happy, happy in heaven, it's going to be me, 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 me. Listen, I've got heaven to look forward to. I've got streets of gold to look forward to. Heaven is my home. I'm walking on my way to home. He will lead me through this life and one day I'll enter glory. I'm on my way to heaven. Listen, you are, you, listen, uh, you are my gain. In verse 26, he said, my flesh and my heart fainteth, but God interrupts. God gives me right perspective on life. He shows me that I have a relationship with a living God. I walk with Him day in and day out. Therefore, I will be pure. You get to looking at this world, you'll wonder why. You'll wonder, you get your eyes off God and get them on this world, you'll wonder why am I living so pure? Why am I trying to do right all the time? Why am I trying to keep my life clean? But you get your eyes off this world and get them on God and you'll say, yeah, that's why I want to be pure. That's why I want to be right. I, he saved me. He's guiding me. He's leading me. I want to be right with God. He, he said that, he, he said that, that my strength in my heart, it, it may be fainting, but God is my strength of my heart and the portion of my days. The wealthy may have the portion of this world, which uh, Peter tells us will burn up in everlasting torment, but he said, God is my God is everlasting. He cannot die. He is designed. Look at what he said in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Is there anything that I want to see in heaven? Is there anything in this world that can distract me, pull me away from? When I've got my perspective made right, when it's been cleared up between me and God, is there anything in heaven that I want but you? And then also in the latter part, there is none upon the earth that I desire but thee. Mystery, mystery of all mysteries. You know who he forgot about? That wealthy wicked. <laughs> oh, Mister, he got his eyes off the wealthy wicked and started putting his eyes on godly grandeur, godly, the godly grand perspective of all things. He is desert. He is his. He was desiring of wealth of this world, but now the only thing he can see is a God that walks with him day in and day out. But God. God can intrude our circumstances. God can intrude our perspective. and Change the way we look at things in this world. And change our view. Hey, listen, I'll be the first to admit. You start looking at this world. You start... Hey, I, I, listen, I've been down in the mouth before. No, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you. Been down in the mouth before. I, I, I've said to myself, you know... I. These messages, you can tell from Sunday school because I didn't prepare for Sunday school. I just kind of up and started something and said a lot of things, a lot of the same things over and over and over again. Amen. But, but hey, I mean, you may not be able to tell it, but I, I prepare for these messages. I put some time into what I'm, 
trying to think about and want to convey to folks. And ain't been a lot of times, you know, you put three or four, five hours in, in a message and, and you see folks not off, not off in church and you, you put three or four hours in a Sunday night message and half of them you think the rapture's already gone. They don't come back. You have a few trickle in on a Wednesday night after you've been sweating bullets preparing. Then I've looked at other folks and, and I sure would just like to sit there like I'm not on a log and go to sleep during church. Why in the world am I doing this? You know? Why am I putting myself through all this pressure? Why, why am I neglecting my children? I feel like half the time. Why, why, why? I'll tell you why. When I get my eyes off of y'all and I get my eyes off of this world and how they go bass fishing and how they go hunting and how they do this and they can do all the things in this world. And I get my eyes on Him and I get my eyes on that cross. Get my eyes on Jesus dying for me. Get my eyes in that Mustang where God saved me March the 20th, 1994, driving that I-75. Get my eyes on those things. That'll change my perspective altogether. Hey, I'm a child of God. I've been given the joy and the honor of taking the unsearchable riches of Christ and bringing them to the child, children of God, to the family of God, and letting them feast from it. What a glorious position I have. Perspective has everything to do with your life. What's your perspective? You know, a lot of people can go through life bitter, bitter and hateful towards God and God's people. Because their perspective is wrong. Why do I have to give my tithe? I'm barely getting by. Why do I have to honor God? Listen, I, I'm tired. I'm feeble. I'm, I don't feel good. Why do I have to truck myself? The TV preacher's right there. I can listen to him. Why do I have to go down there and assemble with all them saints at that church house? Easily what? Our perspective is wrong. We need a godly, grand perspective. Let God interrupt our lives. But God, but God is my strength. But God is my portion. And it'll even out everything in this life. And you'll walk around, <laughs> you'll walk around like the Christian version of Ted Turner. Amen. You may not have a whole lot in your bank account, but I tell you what, there's no reason the child of God has to have their lip dragging the floor every moment of their life. I've been born again by God's grace. He sought me, bought me, changed me. He gave me His Word. He gave me everything. Uh, he gave me His fellowship in the morning. He gave me the guidance of His Word. I don't have to feel my way through life. I don't have to wonder about what's going to happen to me after I die. He'll hold my hand. I've got everything since God interrupted my life. I wonder, maybe you've been down in the mouth. Maybe you've had your eyes on this world. You need a change in perspective. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable how a change in perspective can change your life. Let's all stand as we come with a song of invitation for the Tony. I wonder, do you are, are what what group are you in in this message? There's a group in this message. There's, a, there's three groups. There's the group of the worldly. They think because of God's forbearance, because of the, the wealth made by wicked means, because of, uh, of their pride that there is no God. God's never struck me dead. God's never done anything like that to me. You know, there may be someone here today that feels that way. It feels that way. <laughs> all this God stuff, all this, all this. Listen, the preacher, don't try to scare me. I'm telling you, you're only seeing with a skewed perspective. There is a day coming. You know it in your heart that there is a conscience in your heart that knows, that accuses when you lie, when you steal, when you look with lust, when you blaspheme, when you dishonor your parents. That law of God written upon the heart. You can't get away from it. You can't run from it. It's there. And you know in your heart of hearts one day you'll stand account and give account to God. Listen, change your perspective. Look to the cross. Cross of Jesus Christ. God sent His only begotten Son to die on that cross, shed His precious blood, pay your sin debt, make a way of escape for you. There's an ark. Remember the old story of knowing the ark? There was a way of escape. Anybody could come. All they had to do was get on board. All they had to do was run through that hole and get on the boat. Listen, God has made a way of escape from the wrath to come. The burning of this earth, the torments of hell. God's made a way of escape. Flee to the cross. Come to Jesus today. Don't put it off. Maybe you're here and you've had a skewed perspective. Things haven't been right. You've been looking at this world 
and in looking at yourself and wondering why in the world am I doing what I'm doing? Why in the world am I trying to stay pure in an unholy world? Nobody's going to know if I just cut a few corners, if I slack a little bit. Nobody's going to say anything. If I just let up here or let up there, why I got to walk the straight line all the time? No, the rest of the world doesn't do that. They're making money hand over the fist. Why can't I do whatever I can to make it and neglect the things of God and make it a little better for myself in this world? Hey, hey, you got a skewed perspective. You need to get things right. You need, to, you need a grand, godly view perspective of this world. Listen, you can come today and regain that godly perspective. Realize that He holds your hand. If you're a child of God, you know the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. In Matthew chapter 28, Hebrews, He tells us uh, that, uh, uh, no, um, He said in Hebrews, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Matthew, He said, Lord, I'm with thee always, even to the end of the world. He'll hold our hands. He'll, hold, he'll be with you. Your prosperity, your portion is not that of this world. It is that which, that of this world which burns, which corrupts, which goes away, it is that which is laid up in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. But God, but God, is He your strength? Is He your portion? Come make it so. Change your perspective today. Come to Jesus as we begin to sing. 366, I surrender all. I'm trusting to the unseen hand. We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand Podcast has been a help and blessing to you. For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand Podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home. The Unseen Hand